This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. to Money and Markets. I'm Danny Hewson and on today's podcast we're going to be covering all those important inflation figures which showed that the headline number had moved in the wrong direction. Now the surprise shift had a knock-on effect on markets. We'll look at the winners and losers there as well as the impact of the ongoing issues in the Red Sea. Joining me today is Laura Souter. Hi, Danny. Um, We've got some news about premium bond prize fund falling, which might signal the end of this great run of interest rates that savers have had. And as more people are dragged into the next income tax bracket, we've got some helpful advice on how to navigate that. I've also been chatting to Mark Seidenberg, lead portfolio manager from Alliance Technology Trust, about what he expects from the year ahead and whether you've missed the boat if you've not already jumped on those magnificent seven. First up, though, let's go to those inflation figures. So markets were expecting another drop in inflation, but that is not what the figures dealt up that were released this week. So for context, the inflation figure for November last year was 3.9%, and markets have been expecting that to drop to around 3.7% for December's reading. But instead, that headline CPI figure of inflation rose to 4%. So only a slight increase on November, but a move in the wrong direction. And if we look at core inflation, so that's the measure that excludes energy, food, alcohol and tobacco, that stayed the same as November, so at 5.1%. But services inflation rose slightly from 6.3% to 6.4%. So with that covering all of the figures and as the backdrop, Danny, what was it that stopped inflation from falling? One of the big things that stopped inflation from falling here in the UK is a UK only specific quirk. And that is because we saw a jump in tobacco duty, which was announced by Jeremy Hunt at the autumn statement and was implemented pretty much straight away. And if you're a smoker, you'll have noticed this. So The average pack of 20 cigarettes cost £13.30 in November. The ONS found that it was up 17% from £11.37 a year earlier. And a standard pack of rolling tobacco hit £22.7%. That's almost a quarter from where it was in November 2022. Now, That was just one of the big things. But Grant Fitzner, the chief economist at the ONS, said that actually, without that jump in tobacco duty, we might have seen inflation staying where it was the previous month. But what we have seen now, of course, is those big falls from the likes of energy prices and goods prices. A lot of that really big change has now softened. So in order to try and move the dial now, it's more sticky stuff that needs to change. So you were talking just then about the service sector. And if you think about how price rises have been sort of taken in by a lot of businesses over the last year, they've had to increase wage costs. They've had energy costs go up and input costs go up. And then, of course, they have then translated that into rising prices. And that is something which has now become a bit embedded within the service sector. And we did see that jump. 
And that is the sticky bit. That's where it gets more difficult. And I've heard a lot of people, including the ONS, saying that trying to shave off those last couple of percentage points to get back to where the Bank of England has its target at 2% is going to be the most difficult bit. Now, with hindsight, I wonder why we were so surprised that we did see this jump. I mean, I saw a lot of headlines talking about shock jump in inflation and certainly market reaction, which we'll get onto at the moment, suggested it did catch a lot of people on the hop. But when you look at other parts of the world, when you look at the United States and the Eurozone, which last month also saw an uptick in inflation, then I think maybe in this case, we should have seen it coming. But surprisingly, off the back of that inflation news, interest rate expectations haven't changed dramatically. So the market is still pricing in that the Bank of England is going to be making rate cuts from May or maybe June this year. Although perhaps previously the five cuts that were being priced in for this year might now seem like a bit of a stretch. But more broadly, how did markets react to that inflation news, Danny? I think it is fair to say that markets had quite a wobble. I think what it is, is that investors, markets had really been thinking that the Bank of England saying, hang on, it's far too easy to talk about interest rate cuts, that the Bank of England had got it wrong. You know, they got it wrong when they were talking about inflation being transitory. And they're thinking that maybe this time they've got it wrong and that they will move faster than they had been sort of signaling. And Yes, there was the expectation that cuts, meaningful cuts, a lot of cuts would start to happen from May. But also there was some sort of wonder whether or not that might come earlier. And yesterday what we saw is a shift in expectations. So instead of people, markets expecting that we would start to see cuts from May, now it's far more likely they think that it will be June at the earliest before we will start to see any kind of cut. And that did have a massive impact on markets yesterday. The FTSE 100 suffered its worst day since August. Around 30 billion quid was wiped off the value of the blue chip index. It closed almost one and a half percent lower at 7,446. Now, of course, the FTSE 250, which is more aligned with the health of the UK economy, that plunged 1.71%. I don't think anyone would be, was surprised, certainly you won't be surprised, Laura, to hear that house builders were among the biggest fallers on the FTSE 100 yesterday. Um, a lot of thought that maybe this will put a stop to this mortgage price war thing which has been happening. And a, a lot of concerned that maybe it would start to dent consumer confidence. We saw UK gilt, the 10-year yield, rising some 18 basis points. Now, that's the biggest daily jump since February. Now, I was talking earlier about the fact that in some cases, markets kind of think that the Bank of England got it wrong. And certainly, we have had members of the Monetary Policy Committee pushing back a bit on that, warning that over-exuberance in markets could potentially have as big an impact to global financial stability 
as the geopolitical situations going on in the likes of the Red Sea at the moment. And Christine Lagarde speaking at Davos, who's the president of the European Central Bank, blamed market bets on aggressive rate cuts for holding up policymakers' efforts to tame inflation, saying, look, it's not helping us. The anticipation is such they are way too high compared with what is likely to happen. So I think we're in a, a bit of a pretty pickle. We haven't seen much forward movement today as we're recording this on Thursday. I think there's been a wobble. I think investors have really sort of felt caught out by this changing narrative. And uh, we saw a sort of a lot of move towards defensive stocks yesterday as people sort of changed their investing strategy in order to deal with what they now expect might be the path for the year ahead. And kind of sticking with that inflation theme, one of the big risk factors to that inflation rate is the unfolding situation in the Red Sea. So we've talked about that, touched on it in previous podcasts, but the issue is that the shipping problems there could lead to a rise in prices and in fact already has in a similar fashion to what we saw after the pandemic when shipping rates shot up. And obviously, if those shipping rates increase dramatically, that has to feed through into the price of products, which in itself is inflationary. So while there has been an increase in shipping costs, they're nowhere near those pandemic peaks at the moment. But Danny, have we got any updates on what's been happening with that Red Sea situation in the past week? Yeah, we've had a lot of warnings from company after company. Tesco, Marks and Spencer, Curry's just this morning all warning about the potential impact of supply snarl-ups on the cost of stuff. We have had Volvo and Tesla both suspending production of electric vehicles in Europe for a time because of disruption to those just-in-time supply chains. But I think the biggest warning really came out of Davos. And, and, you know, they've all gathered at the moment for this shinding, all these world leaders, business leaders, politicians to discuss global growth and Ukraine, AI, you know, they were the buzzwords that I think a lot of people were expecting to be talking about at Davos this time. But actually, it's been the situation in the Red Sea, which has dominated. And the boss of Maersk, which is a massive shipping container company, um, has warned that potentially these snarl-ups could create bottlenecks, which could last for months. As you say, we've already seen freight rates more than doubling since early December. We're seeing the cost of insurance going out. We're seeing the length of time it's now taking for shipments which have been diverted to get here. I know IKEA have had some big problems with some of their products. We've also heard from banking executives at Davos saying that they were worried that the crisis might add to inflationary pressures ultimately delay or even reverse interest rate cuts. Now, we've also had a few moves in terms of oil because we have had the boss of the Saudi oil giant Aramco saying that there is potentially an issue that could lead to a shortage of tankers. And this week we have had Shell saying that they were going to suspend all their Red Sea shipments indefinitely. Now, of course, that is a move that threatens a fresh spike in petrol prices for drivers at the pump. Other oil tanker companies, including BP, 
have already halted activity through the Red Sea. That happened in mid-December. So far, we've not seen huge moves in the oil price. Certainly, we're nowhere near back to where we were following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it has this morning gone above $78 a barrel for Brent crude. So, you know, that there, there are movements there. And while we're talking about oil companies, I just thought I'd wind up this bit by talking about uh, big moves by BP. We know, of course, that its chief executive, Bernard Looney, uh, resigned last year um, over all sorts of uh, concerns about relationships that he had with other workers in the company. They'd appointed Murray Auchincloss as the interim chief executive. There was a lot of discussion about whether or not BP, for the first time in its 116-year history, might bring in some fresh blood. But no, it has been confirmed that Murray Auchincloss will stay on as the new chief executive. Um it's fascinating. There will be an awful lot of focus on where he steers the company now. No Bernard Looney was getting a lot of pushback from investors about his moves to make the company greener. And there will be an awful lot of emphasis on making sure that any projects which fail to make adequate returns um, could could well find that they get ditched. Now, BP and Murray Auchincloss has said that he intends to follow the sort of path set out by Bernard Looney, committed to the UK, both fossil fuel and green fuel. But there will be an awful lot of careful watching of the strategy that he implements in the months going forward. And inflation wasn't the only data that we had out this week. We also had jobs and wage figures. What did they tell us about kind of the health of the economy and hiring trends at the moment? It's a bit of a mixed picture because on the one hand, unemployment held firm at 4.2%. Good news if you are sort of hoping for a cut to interest rates by the Bank of England sooner rather than later. Remember, this came out before we had the inflation figures. A lot of focus was on wage growth, which was just 6.6% down from 7.2% the previous month. So on the good news side, that bit of data certainly weighed. But vacancy numbers fell again for the 18th consecutive month. Now, that's the longest run of falls on record And although vacancy numbers are still above pre-pandemic levels, there are concerns that this is the sort of cracks beginning to show. And obviously the most direct impact of those figures would be on recruiters. And we actually had Page Group reporting this week, didn't we? So how are they finding the jobs market? Yeah, because we see with all of these numbers that we're talking about, they're all looking backwards So inflation looks backwards. We've got wage growth and jobs data all looking backwards. Whereas we tend to find that a really good litmus test for the wider jobs market is from these updates by the recruitment sector. And we've had a a warning um, from Page Group um, saying that profit guidance is being slashed, saying that they were having to cut the labour force that they themselves operate Um, So its fee earner workforce was cut by almost 4%. 
operating profits now expected to be slightly below previous guidance um, of 120 to 125 million. But it was the comments around that that I think that really got people's attention. So Page has blamed tougher market conditions, saying that a lot of companies are, are delaying their hiring decisions right now, or they're really sort of drawing them out. So they take an awful lot longer. And also that employees are less up for making the move at the moment. They're far more concerned with the security of the job that they've got rather than chasing um, additional pay packets, which of course certainly wasn't the situation last year. And it's not just Page Group. We've had other recruiters, Hayes and Robert Walters, issuing similar statements about concern of the global jobs market just in the last couple of weeks. Um, now, we, we've been talking, obviously, about base rate expectations because that is the thing which really has been dominating investors' decision-making uh, over the last year or so. You know, it's all been about when will rate hikes stop and then when are we going to get a pivot? But, Laura, if markets are pricing in cuts, it, I think it's clear that some of the heat will then start to come out of the savings market. And even with some of the stuff that we've seen in the last few days, we still potentially are seeing a, a bit of a shift. And we've had an update on that in the past week. Yeah, so um, this is the news that the premium bond price fund is being cut. So what we've seen, obviously, over the past 18 months to two years, there's a real boom in savings rates. Um, savers who've had money stashed away in the bank have been able to earn a really decent return on that money. Now, obviously, during that period, inflation has also been very high. So their ability to earn a real return, a post-inflation return, was a bit limited. But However, those rates have been rising and um, premium bonds have been behind that as well. And we've seen incremental increases in the prize fund for premium bonds. Now, obviously, premium bonds work slightly differently to a conventional savings account in that you put your money in, you're not guaranteed an interest rate, um, but you could win prizes. And how they shift it is they shift the number of prizes on offer and that in turn affects the what they call the expected rate of return to give you a comparison with conventional savings accounts. And what we've seen is that the that expected price fund is dropping from the current 4.65% down to 4.4% from March. So any a small um, decrease, uh, not a dramatic impact on, on people in, um, in premium bonds. However, I think it's more of a signal of where rates are going and the fact that that savings bonanza that we've all been enjoying is coming to an end. I think there are two different things at play here. One is a thing specific to national savings and investments, which is what runs um, premium bonds, and it's the government-backed savings organisation. Um, they have seen huge inflows this year. They launched some um, one-year guaranteed bonds last summer that had huge interest because they had a very high interest rate on them um, in comparison to the rest of the market. They drew in a lot of money at that point and that means that they no longer need to draw in so much money. They're set a fundraising target by the government of how many 
how much of um, savers money they should draw in in a year, they've already reached that target. So they don't need to have high savings rates to draw people in. Uh, what they need to do at the moment is just to have sufficient savings rates so that they don't see huge outflows. So partly this is a NSNI specific thing of they've satisfied their fundraising targets for the year and they no longer need to have super attractive rates. But I think it's also taps into what we're seeing in the broader savings market, which is a gradual decrease in some of those rates. And we've seen the fixed rate market come down. So you can now get more on an easy access savings account than you can on some of those shorter term fixed rate accounts, which is a shift in what we'd seen before. Um, and it's really just another reminder to savers that if you haven't, if you were waiting on the sidelines to get one of those fixed rate accounts, now is the time to move if you haven't already and definitely look at those easy access accounts if you haven't shifted your rates um, and haven't shifted your savings into a higher rate account um, because that savings boom is definitely coming to an end. And things, I mean, they're still costing more despite the fact that we you know, have been talking over the last months about inflation coming down, gone up a tiny bit, teeny tiny bit, but psychologically that shift has been quite important. Stuff's still costing a lot. Interest rates are still high. People are also, at the same time, seeing their income squeezed by more tax. And you've got a handy guide for anyone being pushed into the next tax bracket. But first, give us some of the context of why people are paying more tax. Uh, yeah, so this is the stealth tax free. So we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast before, but I thought it'd be useful to have a bit of an explainer just for those who aren't necessarily aware. So this is the decision taken by the government to freeze the point at which we reach the next income tax band. So normally that would have increased with inflation, but they've decided to freeze it all the way through to 2027, 28 tax year. And so that means that if you get a little bit of a pay rise, or you move jobs and you you increase your salary, um, where previously that money might have stayed within your current uh, income tax band, so your 20% band or your 40% um, income tax band, now you'll find yourself in a, in a higher tax band. It's a sneaky one because it's not a direct tax increase. You're paying more tax than you would have done if they'd increased these tax bands with inflation, but you're not, there's not a kind of, from one day to the next, you're suddenly paying more tax. Um, so it's a very sneaky one that lots of taxpayers don't really realise that they're paying more tax than they otherwise would if this deep freeze hadn't been put in place. And what it means is that people are shifting into that next tax bracket. So whether that's they're going over their personal allowance, which is £12,570, and becoming a taxpayer for the first time, or they're exceeding their basic rate tax band, which is where you pay 20% tax and going into the 40% tax band. Or at the top end of the scale, it's people going into that additional rate income tax band, which is where you pay 45% tax. So very stealthy. And I think you might not have realised what was going on, but I think a lot of us have noticed what's been going on. So what can you do if you find you're being moved into that next tax bracket? So I think um, there's a few things here. There's quite a few kind of thresholds and benefits and action points that you need to take if you find yourself shifting into the next tax band. Ultimately, there's not that much you can do about reducing that tax bill. Um, you 
the tax plans are the same for everyone. If you get a pay rise and you go over that amount, then you're going to pay more tax. Um, a key thing here is that you can pay money into your pension. And that's one of the themes as I go through a couple of these examples. If you pay money into your pension, then that means that it's not taxable income. And so that brings you, that could bring you below that income tax band if you've just shifted into the next one. Um, but obviously that requires you to be able to free up some money to put into your pension. It means that you, you wouldn't have that money to spend now because you would be diverting it into your pension. But in a few of these examples that I've got, there's actually a very lucrative thing to do because if you're losing certain allowances because you've hit a certain income threshold, um, then that could be very valuable. So let me just dive into a couple of examples to bring this to life. So the marriage allowance is one tax break that you get. But it's for a married couple. Um, one of you has to be a basic rate taxpayer, so and less than the 50-odd thousand pounds a year that's the threshold for basic rate tax. And the other one has to be a non-taxpayer, so that means you're earning less than the personal allowance, which is that £12,500 a year, roughly. Um, if you get an increase in your income, either of those halves of the couple, then that would mean, and you went over those thresholds, that would mean you wouldn't be eligible for that marriage allowance. Um, and so what you would need to do is, if you're claiming that tax break, you need to make sure that you go in and cancel it if you're no longer eligible. Otherwise, you risk being landed with a tax bill at the end of the year when uh, the tax man realises that you weren't actually eligible for this tax break. So it's things like that, examples like that of where you shift into a next tax band and you're maybe not quite aware that that puts you at risk of losing certain benefits. Child benefit is another really good example. So you um, are, parents are eligible for child benefit for their children. But as soon as one half of the couple earns between £50,000 and £60,000, that's when they start to lose child benefit. It's the so-called child benefit high income charge. Um, that band has also been frozen for a really long time. Um, and so once you hit £60,000, you no longer get any child benefit. So it's another thing of if your salary is just tipped over that £50,000 mark and you're claiming child benefit, then you need to think, oh, okay, um, this is something that I need to process. You need to tell HMRC. You'll then have to claim the child benefit and then repay it back through self-assessment or through a tax charge. Um, which is quite a complicated and frustrating process for people. That's a good example where putting money into your pension so that you're then brought back down below that £50,000 boundary um, could really pay off, particularly if you've only just creeped over these allowances. And that's something to really be conscious of is if you get a pay rise and you're just suddenly creeping in to the next tax band or over some of these thresholds, um, then it's a really good idea to take a look at it. Another thing to look out for is where you move into the higher rate tax band. So this is where you're earning more than £50,270 a year, very specific. Um, there's a few things that you'll see there. So you will see your tax-free savings allowance reduced. Um, so that's the amount of money that you can earn from your savings tax-free each year. That gets cut down from £1,000 down to £500. So that's quite a big um, hit to your finances. You'll also shift into the next tax bracket for things like capital gains tax and dividend tax. Um, and you're obviously at that child benefit threshold that I talked about earlier. So I think it's really just being aware of if you 
are fortunate enough to get a pay rise or maybe you're taking on extra work and your combined salaries um, will take you past some of these thresholds. It's just being aware of, okay, what is my annual salary now? And does that mean that I need to take some of these action points to either cancel benefits that you previously were getting or tax breaks that you were getting or think about how you can organize your finances, put money into your pension potentially to stay below these thresholds. It's not complicated at all, this tax lark, is it, Laura? <laughs> they say tax doesn't have to be taxing, and I feel like that's the most misleading advertising campaign <laughs> that they ever had. <laughs> Next up, we've got our interview for this week. I caught up with Mark Siedenberg, Lead Portfolio Manager at Alliance Technology Trust. Now, the big business bash over in Davos that I was talking about earlier, it has been dominated by all things AI. And of course, we get the first of those magnificent seven stocks that outperformed all the major stock indexes last year, about to deliver an earnings update. Tesla kicks off, so we'll cover that off on the next episode. Many investors are wondering if the bubble is sustainable and whether or not, if they're not invested in the sector already, if they've missed the boat. Here's what he had to say. I know a lot of um, people listening to this podcast are really interested in the tech sector. It had a storming year. Um, can that continue? Well, I mean, I think that if we take a step back and if we just think about the industry as a whole, and yes, 2023 was a good year for technology. Remember, 2022 was not so fun. So if we were having this, uh, if we were doing this podcast a year ago, you know, your question might be the exact opposite. But but I often remind myself, and I think that the important thing for investors is, you know, you you want to have exposure to this sector long term. And unfortunately, there will be some volatility. Um, I think that's true of a lot of growth in innovative sectors. If you just think about technology and how it impacts our lives today versus even going back, you know, five or six years ago, it is really changed with respect to being a larger part of the way businesses interact with businesses and businesses interact with consumers. And I don't think that's changing anytime soon. If you think about it, most most businesses really want to decrease the amount, decrease the friction um, they have with their with their with their customers. And here again, business to business, business consumers. Um, and this little device from you know a, a small company called Apple, which we're also dependent on, has really kind of shown us what it's like to have just a really robust uh, digital life. And I'm not saying Apple's perfect, but I'm saying that, you know, people want to do business digitally. And that's that's a good thing uh, for the tech companies. And par and parcel with that, you know, you have tech companies solving some of the more difficult problems that exist, right? Whether it's global warming, um, which is a real issue. I mean, I think about my generation and our kind of, our kind of, you know, lack of word caring about things like global warming. It was fairly low, yet if you talk to younger people, it's just top of mind the environment, right? I mean, as it should be, because if there's, you know, if we're living in countries where the average temperature, whatever, goes up five or six degrees, there are large scale ramifications for that. So I think technology is really well positioned um, to really capture and solve some of these trends, as well as help solve some of the problems. I think everyone can understand that 
the need for technology, the relevance of technology and the longevity of technology stocks. But for investors who perhaps are feeling that they've missed the boat, that they didn't get in on the action. I know the Magnificent Seven, you've got a lot of that in your portfolio. I mean, there will be some people looking at those valuations and thinking, it's too hot right now. Yeah, no, it's a fair question. But I think at the end of the day, you know, what we do as a team and myself as the lead portfolio manager, we really think about risk reward um, with respect to investing. So, you know, we have a portfolio. It's it's comprised of a variety of of stocks. The the variety, you know, spans not only the subsector level, but the style level, right? Uh, It's not all growth companies. It's not all value companies. It's an amalgamation of a variety of styles. So I, I hear you on your question. Look, I like to remind you know myself and others that this is a journey and not having exposure to technology has been really expensive for investors. If you go back and look historically, this is truly one of the you know best growth sectors. Um, and by the way, the companies are incredibly profitably profitable at scale. So um, you know, I'm not good enough to really time things. I would remind the investors on this podcast, it probably makes sense to have some exposure in their portfolio and then and to live with that exposure because, you know, here again, you know, I don't have a presentation, I don't have a slide, but if you looked at the sector as a whole relative to other sectors as investments, uh, as it's really been a, a good sector to have exposure to with a multi-year outlook. It's been pretty volatile um, the start of the year already, and tech stocks clearly right at the forefront of that. Just getting your crystal ball out, gazing into 2024, what concerns you? I think the thing that concerns me primarily is, you know, we have come from a, a uh, an environment where companies are, are more judicious with their spending on the IT side. So I think as a portfolio manager, you really have to make sure you are owning businesses that are garnering IT dollars. Like that definitely is something I think about a lot in that, you know, uh, know, during the pandemic, um, you know, so many legacy and kind of what I call next next generation companies did well. And they did well primarily because, you know, what happened was pretty amazing, right? We had all these people that were in the office became productive remote. And that is truly extraordinary. Um, By the way, I hope I never lived through something like that ever again, (laughs) um, uh, as a side note. But, uh, you know, so I think that the thing that I spent, that, that, that I think about a lot and that the team spends a lot of time, you know, kind of vetting is, are the, are, are the companies going to get the dollars needed to grow their business? And obviously, as businesses grow, stocks um, you know, usually follow with appreciation. So I don't think this is a, lo- a rising tide lifts all boats type of market. I still think it's a fairly narrow and focused market. Um, you know, I saw, you know, I saw this morning there was a, a proposed uh, acquisition of a company in the communications equipment sector. Um, you know, the company, if you go back and look for the last 15 years, the company's underperformed. Um, you know, they're being bought by a legacy company. You know, stuff like that, I just kind of look at and say, that's probably not for us. Um, but, you know, I do think you can do well if, in fact, you're able to identify relevant themes and then invest around those themes. Um, and obviously, you're know, thinking a lot um, once you identify the theme of 
who is the company that executes best. It's probably why we're so focused on creating that investment mosaic uh, for, for our shareholders. I think there will be some investors that are concerned about the economic backdrop. Um, we've obviously seen particularly the consumers scale back on their spend. Um, yep. You were just talking about concerns about IT spend and looking into 2024. It just looks like things are going to be more difficult over the next 12 months and even the last 12 months. And the last 12 months brought a lot of cuts, job cuts, you know, really companies thinking about their scale, their size, um, taking a look at how they'd expanded post-pandemic and, and, and right-sizing. I heard that term used a lot. Will we see more of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I think all your points are really good ones and they're ones I think about. Um, look, obviously the interest rate environment that we've been in is something that we haven't seen in a long time. Having said that, I think, you know, probably the worst is behind us. Um, and I think that, you know, when I talk to companies, I think the one thing that's so important for them as they think about their business is predictability, right? So if interest, it's not necessarily that rates go up so much or go down. It's having some type of baseline of understanding what the playing field look, looks like so they can plan their businesses. Um, I do think companies have optimized their cost structures. Look, as a, as have the tech companies, right? And coming out of this, they're going to be more profitable because they're much leaner. Um, so, you know, I don't think that, you know, it, I was just going to use a sporting analogy, but, you know, if you think about a really good football match in the Premier League, look, I think, I think that companies need to be in top shape to do well in the environment we're living in. I also think, and, and this is an important point, that remember, like for me and you on this call and everybody on this call, our demands from IT, whether it's a good economy or a more challenging economy, the demand, the curve of those demands remains fairly steep, right? Somebody always wants a new application. Somebody always wants a new customer service, you know, widget, et cetera, et cetera. And those, that puts a lot of pressure on IT. IT organizations as a whole have really kind of underspent the past couple of years. So I'm not, I'm not advocating that, you know, it's going to be kind of, you know, a bucket, you know, whatever, like a bucket of water falling on somebody's head. I think we'll see pretty healthy spending in, 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 in areas that really matter to companies, right? Whether that's, you know, something like a you know, cybersecurity, movement to digital, the cloud. I mean, if you listen to what Andy Jassy kind of talked about on the Q3 Amazon call, I thought it was just super interesting that he said, you know, we're really entering the production era of cloud workloads, right? We've primarily been focused on having using the cloud for, 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 for an aspect, which they call development and test. Um, and then as you develop and test an application in this example, you move that to production. That's primarily been the focus of most cloud uh, workloads today. Production is kind of where where the dollars are at. So you know, I, I'm I'm excited. I, I think that you know, to your to your point, look, I think you have to find companies that solve difficult problems, right? I don't think this is a you know a loosey goosey you know kind of spend environment. So you know that that that's a challenge for us, and it's something that we embrace. Um, and it's something that I think our process lends it lends it to being successful at. We've seen a lot of merger and acquisition action. We've seen a lot of um, small companies 
partnering with larger companies, particularly I'm thinking when it comes to AI. I mean, that was the buzz phrase of 2023. We're not done with that, no? No, I don't think we're done with that. And I, and I tell you, you know, in my career, which spans, you know, from, you know, 1997 working at Oracle Corporation to today in technology, you know, when, when you hear the use cases around artificial intelligence and the fact that it cuts across so many industries, right? I can't think of an industry that couldn't use some of the functionality that people are, are talking about with respect to artificial intelligence. That's exciting, right? I mean, you just don't, you know, I've worked in technology long enough to know. Sometimes you hear about things that are fads and sometimes you hear about things that are really secular in nature. And uh, artificial intelligence has that secular uh, nature. I thought maybe it was my dogs. Usually it's my dogs that are barking. Uh, it's good to see another dog owner. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I think artificial intelligence is, is a really exciting uh, sector. Um, look, I think there are a lot of periphery beneficiaries of that that you'll see. We're already seeing it. Um, but, you know, here again, my guess is that Wall Street will get too excited and too upset about it. And in between, you know, there's probably a really good risk reward if you have a process that can identify the right companies. Definitely not a robo dog, um, but certainly <laughs> a, a, a watchdog. <laughs> um, and while we're talking about watchdogs, I think something which does concern a lot of investors, a lot of focus has been placed on regulation and yeah. the potential for governments, particularly in the space of AI, particularly when we're talking about these massive companies that have so much power, there is a danger that we will start to see some pretty swinging regulation, which could really impact the profitability of some of these businesses. Yeah, and I think that it, you know it lends itself to kind of one of our key tenets, um, which is we tend to be structurally underweight um, the mega the mega caps primarily because of what you just talked about. Look, these are amazing companies, but I think that that drumbeat of regulation becomes louder and louder. Um, and uh, as the as the years go on, and as the companies get bigger, I think I think it's a it's a real headwind to business. Um, and here again, you know, we tend to be structurally underweight, you know, mega cap, and tend to be more focused on mid cap and large cap, um, primarily because we want to catch that we want to catch companies as they really kind of inflect and grow. Um, so I don't I don't foresee an environment where regulation. Um, kind of, you know, is quieted, I think quite the opposite. Um, and I think a lot of it, look, if you go back and, and if we look at historically, um, you know, I think that on, so, you know, on social media, uh, which is, you know, obviously ubiquitous in so many people's lives today, they, you know, there was, they, you know, the regulators were late um, to kind of identify the social challenges that went with that and, and probably should have had, you know, better oversight, um, uh, so I don't think you'll have that scenario um, this time because I just think it's so top of mind, right? If you also think about just ESG um, as a constituent at the table, is it has a much, you know, has a has the same seat as everybody else, and that may not have been the case, you know, ten years ago, seven years ago, right? I mean, it was still reasonably nascent uh, with respect to 
um, kind of how in, how investors kind of looked at that aspect of investing. And today it is something that, you know, that, that literally, you know, it, it, it is as we're making a decision around investing in a company, you know, we think about the ESG aspects of that investment. Before we wrap this up, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is the yeah. one thing that you are excited about that's coming down the tracks over the next 12, 24 months? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's, you know, uh, I think it really is this notion of businesses moving to digital. It's just such a powerful and compelling thing. If you think about, you know, if you think about, you know, companies like, you know, a John Deere, right? Agricultural, they sell ag equipment. They are so digital. If you take a look at, you know, what's going on in their businesses, right? And how they interact with their customer um, you know, uh, through smart technologies. So that's really exciting to me. Um, look, I think it's a journey um, that, that, that most businesses will, are, you know, are going to make primarily because if you don't, we've seen, we've seen the likes of companies that have kind of, you know, gone away, right? And so I think that, you know, here again, I, uh, I really like business to business. I really, I really focus on, you know, companies that solve, you know, some of those, some of those problems. So I, I like the movement to digital. Look, I think the best neighborhood in technology, bar none, is cybersecurity, right? Uh, if you think about, you know, you, you and I were just talking about uh, artificial intelligence. For every artificial intelligence workload that is deployed, there is a cybersecurity aspect to it, right? Um, and the adversaries are not, you know, five people in a room trying to hack into, you know, a high street retailer, right? It is sophisticated nation states who have very robust budgets with the best and the brightest, unfortunately, working for them sometimes, depending on the country. Um, you know, that creates a real need uh, for companies to invest in cybersecurity. Um, you know, I jokingly say, you know, <laughs> I will be, you know, I, I will be long gone uh, as a portfolio manager and people will still be talking about cybersecurity. So like that's another area that I just think has real durability. Um, and I think you, I think everybody on this call understands how incredibly frightening that is, you know, when you are, you know, breached or when you, when you, when you click on that, you know, phishing email. Um, so it has this, here again, has the consumer and the business to business aspect to it. So I think that's exciting. Mike, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Have a wonderful day and I look forward to connecting again. That was Mark Seidenberg, Lead Portfolio Manager of the Allianz Technology Trust. And that is everything that we've got time for this week. So catch next week's episode where Dan and Danny will be bringing you an interview with AJ Bell's Investments Director, Ryan Hughes, as well as the usual markets and personal finance news of the week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares magazine. The podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not. Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.